0: now and then, we get a big hitter through our doors. And this week is a great guest, Chuck Chamnus, recently retired CEO of Enamic, and now Senior Advisor at Bain Capital. Chuck, welcome.
1: Thanks, Stuart. It's great to be here.
0: We're also joined by Matt Popoli, Managing Director and Head of Bain Capital Insurance. Matt, welcome. Thanks, Stuart. Glad to be here. Chuck, let's start with you. You're one of the most visible guys in the insurance industry as CEO of Namek. For those people who may not know, what's Namek? What is it? And what does Namek do?
1: Yeah. Well, and, and let's be careful as CEO of Namek up until last July, I am now a former CEO, retired CEO of Namek, right. So. But I did spend a good time in that seat, a long time, from 2003 to last July when I was succeeded by Neil Aldridge, who is doing an excellent job now as NAMIC's new CEO, the sixth CEO. So NAMIC, I think it's interesting. Like our member companies, uh, NAMIC, the association, is rather long-lived. It started in 1895 when a group of mutual insurance companies decided that they needed to um, have a national association. And of course, it's served the mutual insurance industry ever since. Its profile is about just over 40% of the total property casualty insurance industry market is covered by uh, NAMIC members. Its members range from giant national, in some cases, global riders, household names, to regional mutuals, one-state riders, to tiny little farm mutuals that do business in rural America. So it's really quite a, a diverse group. You know, we we love, and I say I'm sure I'll lapse into the dynamic "we" several times in this discussion. I can't help it; I'm trying to break myself of it. But I still consider myself part of, you know, the mutual insurance industry, which I served for 26 years. So we, you know, we have a, a long-term focus, like the mutual insurance companies themselves, you know, owned by their policyholder members, run for the benefit of the policyholders. And NAMIC's specific role, though, is to uh, represent them in the regulatory, public policy, government affairs space. And we know, as a heavily regulated industry, which property casualty insurance clearly is, uh, it's very important that we get that part right that creates the environment in which our member companies, NAMIC member companies, can serve their policyholder members. So, first, it's government affairs. NAMIC has a 12 person Capitol Hill office that does federal affairs. NAMIC has a PAC, that's about a million three, puts it in the top 2% in terms of PAC size uh, in the U.S., very valuable in getting to know federal uh, elected leaders. Obviously, there are regional government affairs representatives who cover states. Every state is a uh, NAMIC representative assigned to it for uh, regulatory and state government affairs. And then we do all the other things that an association does, including you know certification programs, conventions. Various training. Uh, I think there's 11 or 12 in-person meetings. Now, you know, post COVID, these things are all evolving, but it still has a great culture of getting together with our members. You know, our members, I think, uh, maybe a distinct characteristic of the mutual insurance industry, they're willing to help each other. So right now, NAMIC is having its CEO roundtable, an important meeting where the CEOs all gather and by peer group, they set the agenda and they lead discussions about uh, uh, issues around the industry. So The other thing NAMIC does is it has its own insurance company. This goes back to 1987. In the hard market for professional liability, our members couldn't get director and officer liability and and what we call ICPL, insurance company professional liability. So NAMIC started a company to serve that need. It's ironically a stock company. So I was chair of the NAMICO board for the 18 years I was CEO of NAMIC. Actually, in my last six months with NAMIC, I was interim CEO of NAMICO, our insurance company because uh, we needed to find a new lead there. And so we um, ended up, I uh, led the search and we hired uh, our vice president claims, a really uh, excellent professional liability uh, leader in Jen Hamilton. So Namico's policies are sold exclusively through Namics Insurance Agency, which is an important source of non-dues revenue to the association. Uh, the association's you know revenue is about 23, 22 million total. And, you know, again, it comes from dues. It comes from profitable business operations. You know, it's a a very uh, healthy and financially sound entity capable of serving the AMIC members' needs.
0: It is very interesting. And you, you mentioned this, you know, when I teach insurance to students, you know, there's kind of two major insurance structures, mutual insurance companies that are owned by policyholders and stock companies that are owned by stockholders. And they're very different, right? I mean, mutual companies tend to have, a, as you mentioned, a longer time horizon, oftentimes than stock companies do. Yes. So, all right, Chuck, so I'm on your LinkedIn and prepping for this thing. And I look at the background, and I can't get past NAMIC. And then it says, see all entries, and I hit that button, and it goes to some big laundry list, and I still can't get back past NAMIC. So where did you start your career? Give me the background. What happened to Chuck pre-NAMIC?
1: Well, I spent 10 years in Washington, D.C. You know, as I mentioned, the role NAMIC has in government affairs and representing the mutual insurance industry in public policy, you know, I learned that in my time in in D.C. I worked for I worked in the first Bush administration. I was head of public affairs under Jack Kemp, who was a great you know, conservative leader and HUD secretary. I worked on Capitol Hill as a press secretary for a member of Congress who was a banking committee member. I actually met my wife through the House Banking Committee, now called House Financial Services Committee. But we were both there. She worked for a law firm at the time. We were covering a conference committee of a banking law back in 1987. And I met Bridget there. She later went to work on the Hill. She became general counsel of the House uh, Banking Committee and worked on the Hill for about seven years. I worked in other places around the Hill and the uh, banking industry and financial services. But um, anyway, and we're a mixed marriage. So I'm, I'm a Republican and she is a Democrat and uh, she still is. And she worked for Chairman Gonzalez, who was at the time chair of the, uh, of the committee. So that was kind of where I learned it it is um, we looked and our careers were evolving and we thought, well, it was time to probably make a change. We had our first house on Capitol Hill. Our first two kids had been born and um, we thought maybe we just change up the career a little bit. We ended up in Indianapolis. I'm from Indiana originally and, and did some networking, ended up with job offers. She became chief counsel at the Department of Insurance. Evan Bay was governor back then. And uh, I became vice president of public affairs at NAMIC. So that was my, really both of our first starts in in insurance. She didn't stay in insurance long. I ended up being a lifer with uh, 26 years at NAMIC and 18 as CEO.
0: That's a great story. I didn't, I don't know, man, That's, that's good background there. So let me ask you this, a friend and client, Colin Dowdle at Loomis, when we were on the phone the other day, he said, a life insurance industry has changed more in the last 18 months than it has in the last 50 years. Do you agree with that? How does that statement strike you, given your perspective over your career in the insurance business?
1: I think it strikes me as pretty close to accurate. I mean, putting a time period on, it's hard. But, uh, you know, we saw, I was actually scheduled to retire a year earlier. I had planned on that, but my board asked me to stay. The NAMIC board asked me to stay an extra year. Because of course, COVID had uh, happened, and uh, all of our member companies were working remotely, nearly all of them. And uh, you know, their reliance on technology, which would be the big you know headline here, you know, changed overnight, effectively, with that remote work, with uh, determining different ways to you know underwrite business, to adjust claims, often relying on new technology or at least technology they hadn't used extensively before. So I think it was, you know, turbocharged the industry's use of technology. And of course, you know, these are businesses, they're companies run by managers who now have a different work environment to lead it. And so I think that's been a major change as well. But, um, you know, we dealt at NAMIC with some pretty uh, challenging public policy issues. You might remember that uh, early days of the pandemic, there were legislative attempts to to retroactively put in place business interruption insurance to cover the pandemic risk, which wasn't ever in the policies. Most had, you know, exclusions for it. Even those that didn't, it clearly wasn't designed to um, to cover business interruption caused by a pandemic. So, and those are legal cases that continue. The industry is winning them as we expected. But, you know, that also presented at least a challenge, if not a change to the industry that's been driven in the last two years of COVID.
0: You know, I think that a lot of times the insurance industry, and I've I've been a big advocate for many years, and it's been a great career for me, and I love the insurance industry. I think the insurance industry gets a bad rap for things like this that somebody goes, well, yeah, they should pay for it. It's like, well, that wasn't the intent of the policy. You can't just expect insurance companies to just pick up the bill when when something goes wrong that's not... You know, I, I just think that insurance companies sometimes get that bad rap. I think health insurance gets that bad rap. And I just think it's unfounded. You know, you've got a responsibility to your policyholders and your shareholders to pay every valid claim, right? On in a timely basis, right. but you can't pay claims that you're not responsible for. So
1: absolutely. We I mean literally didn't receive any premium for that that risk. It's right. not part of the policy. It's been well, it's been determined over years. Most of the exclusions go back to was either SARS or MERS or some of the other earlier pandemics where industry, you know, companies, underwriters just focused on the potential risk of having everyone stop business at the same time and knowing that it couldn't be covered by even the capacity of the insurance industry. So uh, it's not, but the headlines are not uh, what we wish they would be when, when these stories are written. And of course we have, you know, the plaintiff's bar and others who are very active helping write the other side of that story and have their own motivation. So it's a struggle, but um, I think this is resolving itself as it should. And, um, you know, we'll be in good shape once the court cases are all completed.
0: So you've been retired from as the NAMIC CEO for a while now, and as happens with a well-regarded successful leaders you found your way to a a second career or another step here and you're a senior advisor at bain capital insurance how did you come to know bain and how did that come together
1: well it started in that i knew matt matt has worked around our industry some time, and matt is obviously with us so he can speak to the origin story but bain set up this insurance business unit just over a year ago brought in matt in to run it and uh So it was after that that we started discussing, you know, whether there might be a fit for me here. You know, from my perspective, I know enough about our industry and its needs, particularly on the capital side, to know what an important difference, you know, the focus of a firm like Bain could make working in the insurance industry. And with Matt and the Capel team he set up, you know, their great reputation, creativity, you know, insurance knowledge just seemed like a great opportunity. So that was kind of how I came to it.
0: And Matt, I want to bring you to the conversation. I'll, I'll say it like this. The old saying goes, you've seen one insurance company, you've seen one insurance company, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But, but one thing that mutual, and this is, believe me, like I am way practicing without a license right now. So just hang on to your hats. Here we go. So mutual insurance companies don't have a good way of raising capital, is mainly through retained earnings, right? That's where you're gonna get capital. A stock company can go out and issue stock and raise capital. How does Bain and Bain Capital Insurance, how do you address that need for capital in the mutual
2: insurance space? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Stuart, it's true. If you look at how mutual insurance companies are structured, versus stock companies. When a stock company needs to raise equity, they go to their shareholders and say they're gonna issue another $100 of stock and they issue the $100 of stock and they either bring in new shareholders or existing shareholders put up more capital and they they have the $100 and off they go. As you point out with mutual insurance companies, it's more difficult. So mutual insurance companies have the ability to use reinsurance as capital. So many of them are big users of reinsurance. And really, if you think about what reinsurance is, reinsurance is just a different form of capital. And so the, some of the largest reinsurers are big reinsurers of mutual, of the mutual industry are great partners of the mutual industry. Mutual companies can also issue a form of debt that's called surplus notes and surplus notes are a kind of a hybrid equity debt instrument, but those are typically capped at a, A percentage of surplus in the range of 20% or 25% in that range. But what they can't do is go to their policyholders and ask for equity because the companies are just not structured to do so. So there's a couple of things that mutuals can do. They can set up what's called a mutual holding company, which effectively establishes a downstream stock entity. The top company is still a mutual owned by the policyholders, but they set up a downstream stock company and they can then issue equity at that entity, at the mutual holding company entity. And then they can also actually do what's called a demutualization, which is converting from a mutual form to a stock form. And that's something that happened many, many times back in the early 2000s with names like John Hancock and, and MetLife and Prudential. But, but those are really the, the ways that insurance company mutuals can raise capital.
0: What's the trend on surplus notes in terms of issuance volume is it i mean surplus notes have been around and you know back even like when i started in the business back when the earth was cooling how are you seeing
1: that well let me lead off because i'll give you a little background on it because namek had a role in this and uh and i'll also differentiate large companies from regional and smaller Back in so I would hear as NAMIC CEO routinely from member companies who had plans to enter a new line of business, enter new territory, needed more flexibility, driven by more surplus, and a surplus note was the best way to do that. We had a securitized program that was really very efficient, very cost effective, very flexible, and it was pre-financial crisis. And uh, we, we and I mean NAMIC working in concert with the firms that did this ran. Hundreds of millions of dollars in surplus notes, which really helped uh, NAMIC member companies in the financial crisis. Then that um, source dried up effectively, and ever since. And now I'm not talking there. There's probably fifty billion dollars in surplus notes out there today, but most of them are from very large mutuals who issue them directly. For the regional companies, say you know five hundred million premium, eight hundred million premium to the one state riders like a farm bureau or smaller companies there's really not been a market for 10 years. So going back to your question about, you know, Bain and its interest in this area and its capabilities in this area, which are significant, it's a very positive development that uh, that Bain is is getting into this. And I think for mutual insurance companies of that size, smaller than national riders, it'll be a great tool for them.
0: Yeah, I think your point about access to capital And size of company is the same as access to various asset classes and large versus small. It's hard for some of the mid to smaller companies to get efficient access to some of those asset classes as well. So, Matt, did you want to talk about trend line on issuance? Has it been relatively quiet and, and now that market, you see that opening up a little bit?
2: Yeah, so it's exactly as Chuck said. So, I mean, over the last couple of years, last two years, there have been over $13 billion of surplus notes issued, which sounds like a really large number in the context of the overall statutory surplus of the U.S. life and annuity industry, U.S. PNC and life annuity industry, it's quite small. And then as Chuck indicated the vast mass majority of that 13 plus billion went to the big big companies. Nationwide was a big issuer. TIAA was a big issuer. So if you actually look at the amount of surplus notes issued by companies that have less than a billion dollars in surplus or less than 500 million dollars in surplus, it's actually quite low. And again, as, as Chuck said, I mean those are the companies that are struggling to raise capital. And if you think about the capital levels, and this is a generalization, but typically the larger companies are more well capitalized. And so the companies that are more well capitalized have easier access to additional capital. The smaller companies that are less well capitalized have you know less access to capital. And so you kind of can see kind of what's what's happening here in terms of the split between the large companies that are well capitalized and have access to capital and the smaller companies that, that may need more capital and are having a hard time accessing that capital.
0: Chuck, I mean, I know you know these stats like the back of your hand, but there are, I think, 330 companies above a billion in invested assets, and a total of like 1,900 companies-ish. There's a lot, a lot of companies that are not very big. I mean, I had clients when I was at Neom, I had two clients that were $50 million a piece in total invested assets. And they had both been around for years. I mean, like one was 100 years old. It's not like these companies just showed up, right? But just like outsourcing investment management, where you're trying to take advantage of the asset manager's scale and expertise to get a better outcome from from an asset class. Maybe you don't have the internal experience, Maybe you don't have a big enough allocation to justify having the internal experience. I view this in the same way with Bain as you've got the background and you can shepherd someone through the process of issuing a surplus note in an efficient manner. Is that a fair kind of look at things?
1: I think it is. I mean, I think the, the difference with Bain will be it's a, basically a one-stop shop. Bain, Matt, and his team have all the capabilities. They certainly have the capital, um, have the interest and the ability to shepherd it through the regulatory and and ratings process that are all necessary and, and often, you know, in other circumstances would include multiple parties to, uh, to take care of that. So I think it's very promising. And you're right, when you just look at the industry's uh, profile, you know, it is a very broad and decentralized industry, your comments about, uh, you know, those companies you worked with at neam I'm sure they were both mutuals. I mean, they have 100%. the characteristics of, you know, being smaller and uh, being hundred years old that's, you know, 60 or 70% of neamic member companies are over hundred years old. So I think it's a, a perfect formula for success in this area and really filling an unmet need that at least for the last 12 years hasn't been uh, addressed for these companies now we know that you know rate environment is changing there's a lot of different moving pieces that will address but it's still you know for companies that are well managed that are capital constrained for whatever reason or have plans to grow or rated you know well and have good management and a plan for growth they really haven't had the access to surplus notes that i think they'll have soon when we roll this out
0: i'm almost afraid to ask this question so hang on what about MA in mutual space my experience in mutual in mutual space is that you know there are companies that have been around a really long time and they serve an important need in their community in particular very regional right you know one of my clients let's tell you that their website read no matter where you live and it named four places in virginia that i have never heard of right but that's their market, and they know it cold. <laughs> yeah. right? And you go, you know, these folks, do you see M&A in the same way that you have uh, sales of life blocks? Are you seeing that kind of activity?
1: Well, there is, you know, there are certain characteristics of mutuals that make M&A hard because they're owned by their policyholders. That ownership has some different definitions, but effectively, they are. And so you can't buy one. And that's part of the reason, and Matt mentioned mutual holding company, that structure has been much embraced in the last few years. And in large part, because if you're a mutual that's interested in uh, affiliations to grow your business, then you'll need a mutual holding company structure to affiliate them into a broader group. You still have the mutual rights from the policyholders. It's just they've been transferred to the holding company structure, while the mutual insurance company underwriter has been demutualized. So... In that way, you can structure a company with a mutual holding company at the top and then multiple affiliates who would be those affiliated mutuals below it. It's a much more efficient way to operate. The traditional mutual affiliation pattern has been to basically combine company management, do reinsurance pooling, usually have boards that are the same board for different entities, legally different entities. They publish different annual reports. They represent different policyholders. They have different names, so that can create some inefficiencies that are are solved by the mutual holding company structure. And again, with the Bain team that that Matt's assembled, I think there's a great opportunity to uh, assist companies in in these kinds of transactions as well.
0: And just talking, just flip the script a little bit on the investment side, right? Which is, you know, way more my bailiwick here big, big allocations and big trend to private assets, right? Anything private. Why? For investment income, the end, right? The insurance industry has a very well-established reputation of being slow. And the regulatory environment is tough because the capital charges are the lowest for the lowest-yielding instruments, and you're seeing a shift of folks who are trying to figure out a way to generate enough investment income and that's created this stampede or this trend toward in private assets. Matt, how do you feel about valuations in private asset classes right now broadly? Is it frothy? Do you think that the private market has enough capacity to handle these capital flows?
2: Yeah, and what you said is exactly right. If you look at the shift over the last number of years, there's been a shift away from plain vanilla investment-grade corporates into private credit, into real estate debt, into private equity, into real estate private equity. And that trend, I mean, it's already happening and it'll continue. As you said, the capital treatment on those assets, depending on the structure, can be punitive in cases. And so carriers are limited to how much of their portfolio they can invest in those asset classes. But I think, as as you pointed out, if you look at the trend in rates up until really the last few months here, both in terms of treasuries and then in terms of spreads, it's been a long march down in terms of rates. And if you look at carriers that have longer duration business, whether it's comp or whether it's on the life annuity side, they have some very long-lived liabilities. And those liabilities were put on the books, you know, many many years ago in instances, and the rates were a lot higher than, than they are today. And so I think figuring out how to mitigate that liability and defeat that liability in our profit is critical and something that carriers obviously spend a tremendous amount of time on. And again, and our observation is the trend into private equity, the trend into private credit will continue. And obviously, the NEICs rules are evolving in those fronts, and they're continuing to make sure that I think there's appropriate capital charges against those assets, but again, our sense is that trend will continue, and it's really, if you look today, a lot of things are overvalued today. We see a lot of attractive relative value in private equity and in private credit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in fairness to the regulators, you know, what's the regulator's ultimate job? Well, it's to make sure that when you have a claim, the insurance company can pay it. The end, Right. They're not worried about profitability of the insurance company. They're worried about the insurance company being able to pay the policyholder. And that's right. So what was the biggest risk? Well, the biggest risk was default or loss of the money that you've invested in. So the capital charge regime is around credit quality, right? And now we just have this other risk. And the main risk facing these companies is that they can't earn enough on their invested assets, given the regulatory regime that favors high rated public assets that have a very low interest rate. And and I think the regulators making strides at changing up some of the capital charge regime, but it, as it's complicated, right? These regulations are at the state level. There's a lot involved in changing this stuff. And uh, I don't see this trend going away. Do you see anything that changes this, what I refer to as a mega trend?
2: Yeah. And I think it's a mega trend. And again, it's been happening for the last few years and it feels like it'll continue happening. Rates obviously have ticked up recently and who knows if that continues or not. I mean, many signs obviously point to that continuing, but even as that happens, it feels like the momentum around private credit, the momentum around private equity within the insurance company general account will continue. Yeah. And I I think, I got on my soapbox
0: and my editor's letter in our first quarter edition. I got out equations in this thing. And the, my point of this whole thing is you know, real interest rates are negative right now. And that is a killer for insurance companies that are facing the full force of inflation on the claim side. And they're facing a negative real rate on the investment side. It's challenging out there. I mean, is that, do you see that that way or what's your view kind of look in 22,
2: 23? You know, it, it, it continues to be a challenging environment for sure for investment returns within a regulated insurance company balance sheet. And again, it, it seems hard to see that trend slowing. Again, I think the trend has begun. It obviously started with some of the larger companies, some of the more sophisticated companies, but we're now seeing that trend of more private equity, more private credit, kind of trickle into the smaller mid-sized companies, into some of the smaller mutuals. We've had, again, many discussions with mutuals about that. And again, I think they are starting to also see the benefits of diversifying the investment portfolio into these sorts of asset classes that offer higher return opportunity. And while obviously any insurance company has to be mindful of liquidity, has to be able to, back to your point of ensuring they have the cash to pay claims, which is what the regulators really care about. Many insurance companies have a relatively long duration, somewhat illiquid liabilities. So they actually have the ability to have illiquid assets to match their illiquid liabilities. Absolutely. It's not not as if you have a bank balance sheet where it's possible that on one day, you know, you have a, a proverbial run on the bank and people come in and withdraw. It's very difficult for insurance companies to have that same kind of run on the bank. And we did a bunch of analysis on just the stability of the insurance companies and insurance company liabilities. And and back during the financial crisis, uh, there was something like 380 bank failures from 2008 to 2013. And on the insurance company side, there were six. And so 381 and six, I think the six really speaks to the resiliency of the insurance company balance sheet and and the insurance company liability structure. And I I think the very thoughtful kind of state by state regulation and and so on.
0: And I'll just flat out say it insurance companies are smart money, and people think they aren't. They think they're dumb because they've got these big public bond portfolios. It's not that they're dumb money. They're smart money. There's no doubt about it. We're kind of on the tail end of our podcast here, and this is the uh, completely unannounced Ask Me Anything portion of the program chuck i'll start with you (laughs) you i know i well i shouldn't say i know i believe that you are a big advocate of the insurance industry as a career choice using that as a premise if you were graduating from college today where would you look what type of business what would you be looking for As a good career path or an area of growth in the insurance industry?
1: Well, that's a great question. I have four 20 something kids, and one is in the insurance industry, a private credit analyst with a large company. But the great news about the insurance industry is almost any skill set can be utilized successfully with a good long career in the industry. I mean, if you're a financial type, there's a ton of you know roles in that area, dealing with the kinds of things you talk about in your podcast and your listeners do every day. If you are an underwriter or you're analytical, if you're a claims person who likes to deal with people and help solve problems, deal with the system, the judicial system where some things are resolved, you know, opportunities there. Clearly, technology. We kind of began with technology; might as well conclude with. It's more and more a technology business. I was having. Uh, lunch with a friend of mine, an actuary, who's doing a study about actuaries in the C-suite and uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, it is a major trend because as the industry becomes more analytical and driven by data, actuaries are more and more valuable. And they're CEOs now, there are plenty of, you know, member company, dynamic member, mutual insurance company, CEOs or actuary because it's such a valuable skill set. So clearly that would be a, a category as well. You know, you have HR, you have, you know, Lawyers, lawyers everywhere. So I think the adaptability and stability, let's just you know, end with that. For the kids, like our kids in their 20s who've seen the financial crisis, as Matt mentioned, have now seen a global pandemic. If they value stability as in a, an employer that isn't subject to a run on the bank as one characteristic, or just is gonna be there for the next 100 years that's been there for the last 100 years, it's a great industry for that too the distribution size that I haven't even mentioned because I focus more on the companies, but that is changing wildly. And, uh, you know, Bain has been involved with that as well because, you know, the independent agent model is evolving and, um, some there's always great sales jobs, marketing jobs, customer contact jobs with, uh, you know, on the distribution side. So I think that's the secret that the industry is really trying to get out now and to, um, to solve for as it faces a talent gap with a lot of retirements coming up and that is to spread the good word about how many great flexible long-term stable rewarding careers there are so that's my take on it
2: yeah and just to add to that you know if you look at how coverages are evolving cyber is a six or seven billion dollar premium industry today By the end of this decade is, it's expected to be 40 billion dollars in premium and so if you just Think of that. I mean, $40 billion is a, a big, significant line of business. And if you look at the underwriters involved, the claims handlers and, and all the different people that touch cyber, that industry is going to need a lot of, of new folks to kind of be part of it. And as, again, as, as young people are thinking about growth, I mean, it's an area where they're going to have more technical expertise than, than people from our generation. And again, I think it's a really interesting part of the insurance world. And then I think as Chuck touched on, you know, distribution. The average insurance agent, it's aging, right? And so if you look at the average age, they're getting up there. And many of those agencies, of which there are tens of thousands in in the U.S., are looking to retire. And so, again, insurance distribution is a great way to make a living, really interesting business. And again, I think as young folks kind of come into the industry, looking to be part of insurance distribution, I, I think is really a great path.
0: And I may get myself in trouble here, Chuck, but my experience is that mutual insurance companies treat their employees really well. My former client, Secure Insurance in Appleton, Wisconsin, I'll just throw them out there. You know, they had a family picnic for their employees. It was the nicest thing. And every time you go there, warm chocolate chip cookies on the reception counter. I mean, come on, how how are you gonna get better than that? That's amazing. But Matt, don't feel bad. I don't want you to feel left out because you got your own question, you ready? It is your graduation day of college. You walk across the stage, get your diploma, quick photo op with the president. Down the stairs you go. At the bottom of the stairs, you run into yourself today. What do you tell your 21-year-old
2: self? That's a good one. I will first say that as I walked across the stage, I was wearing shorts under my uh, under uh, you know my my robe, and the president said, handed me the diploma, and also said, nice shorts. And then as I walked down, I walked down to my wife and our daughter. So my wife, Paul of 25 years now, and our daughter who we actually had in college. And I think a lot of people thought I was probably crazy for being 21 or 22 and being married in college. And I guess what I would tell myself 25 years later is don't change anything. That was the best decision you ever made.
0: That is awesome. That's one of the best answers I've ever gotten from this. That's really nice. Chuck Chamnus, Senior Advisor, Bain Capital Insurance. Chuck, thanks for being on.
1: Thank you, Stuart.
0: Matt Popoli, Managing Director, Global Head of Bain Insurance Capital. Matt, thanks for for taking the time today.
2: Thanks, Stuart, appreciate you having me.
0: Absolutely, our pleasure. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast.